Welcome to the How I Became podcast, all about entrepreneurship. Hi, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining me today on the How I Became podcast. It's such an honor to have you here to chat with and pick your brain on your experience in the startup world, but also your experience as you've moved into a fractional CMO, fractional marketing role within startups. So you've had the Schulich School of Business graduate, you've done brand management for some Fortune 100 companies, VP at some really cool brands like Vidyard, FreshBooks, CleanFit, and as I mentioned, you're moving into the fractional CMO world, but also layered onto that, the VP marketing coach, which I think is also very interesting. So really cool and a lot of different transitions. Wanted to ask how you moved through all of these roles and how you ultimately ended up at this fractional CMO place and what that actually means. Well, thank you very much for having me, Kelly. It's always fun to talk to you. So now we get to do it in a more formal way. That's a really good question. I don't want to, you know, chronologically document every step and every move, but I'll tell you about the key pivotal moments that really caused me to understand more and more about where I wanted to go and take myself and my own sort of journey in marketing. At the very beginning, I kind of, I was very lucky that I wanted to do marketing or advertising, something in that space. And so I went to business school, I got my business degree. And <clears throat> at the time, there was no tech, okay, this pre-internet, you know, the, whatever, that if you're a marketer, you go and you work in packaged goods companies. And so all, the only career path I knew at the time was to work at a packaged goods company. And the, the preeminent one was Procter & Gamble. And I was going to be the president of Procter & Gamble. That was it. That was the path. But I learned very early on that best laid plans don't always work out. And, but I also learned that can be to your advantage. And if I go to the end of the story, you know, one of the lessons I'm going to talk about is throughout my career, I really just started paying attention to where I was really happy and feeling really happy and productive at work. And when I was feeling the opposite and those are really good trigger points for me to make some key decisions about where I wanted to go next in my own career. So, you know, starting PG was amazing. Like it was, I got my dream job and I learned a ton about customers and insights. But after three years, it was pretty clear that working in a big corporate environment was not a good fit for me. I had no idea that idea entering into that. And I was just trying to push so many things through, like we should change this, we should test this, we should do this. And all I was getting back was, look, these are the world standards. These are the best practices. This is how we do things at P&G. And I felt like the walls were really coming in on me and I just couldn't really be fully expressed in terms of how I wanted to grow and build a business. And so <clears throat> I, you know, I left P&G and ended up bumping into this organization, this company that eventually became Lava Life and an online dating company. And <clears throat> before I was there, I actually told my recruiter when I was looking for a job, he's like, well, what do you really want, Mitch? And <clears throat> at that point, I kind of reflected and I said, you know, I just want to work at a company where I can be myself <laughs> and I can really apply myself and make an impact every day on the business. And that's really all I want to do. And I wasn't getting those things at Procter and & Gamble. And I think through our careers, we, we tend to, to move the pendulum from one side to the other. Whatever we're not getting somewhere else is what we look for in the next. And so I ended up at a, an early stage startup called Lava Life. And the mandate was figure it out. We, you know, we've launched a couple markets. 
we want to make this thing really big in the online dating space. There was no online dating. It was actually telephone dating. And my job was to, to actually build the best practices for an entirely new category in an entirely new space of which there were no rules. No one had figured out how to market or sell or grow a business like this before. It was entirely new. And the beautiful thing, I was also very lucky because the company was very much committed to building a really good company. So the founders, they had a really solid business. It was spinning off lots of cash. So that was great. They didn't just go and just grab a bunch of money. They said, you know what, it's really, let's build a great company. And, you know, I really learned a lot <clears throat> through my, and I was at Lava Life for nine years. And I'll say though, the last two years were awful, right? So, but before that, these guys had invested so much in, in building values, culture, in setting very clear goals and creating a foster uh, um, collaboration across teams, all these systems in place to, attract and hire really amazing people. And I still think some of the best people I ever worked with were the folks I worked with at Lava Life. And what I learned through that experience, I was there for nine years. My last two, I came in as a junior marketer, I think, you know, marketer number one. And by the end, we'd grown from about 2 million to 100 million in revenue. And I was a VP marketing with a team of 26 people. Wow. I had a budget of $20 million. We were running TV and radio ads and we were really killing it at the time. But I really owe it to them for also creating more and more opportunities for me to grow and develop. So I never had to spend too long in any one role before I was presented with a new opportunity to, hey, Mick, you know, we've got some really challenging markets. You know, do you want to take those and figure out how to grow them? And then, you know, to be a director, I moved over to product and I started working on the whole product experience, which was so valuable as a marketer to understand how you navigate the buying process from someone being outside the product to inside the funnel to converting and driving revenue to, you know, being a director of marketing to then being the VP marketing. So I really learned a lot through that. And after I left Lava Life, I really just started looking for three things. I was looking for founders that first and foremost cared about building a great company because I knew if they cared about building a great company and I, I enjoyed building a good company. I, I, see, I saw it work. Then that was criteria number one. Number two is they authentically cared about their market. And you can dismiss an online dating business as like, oh my God, you know, who really cares about their customers? But both Procter & Gamble, I'll give them the credit, they were relentlessly customer focused. But Lava Life was also very relentlessly customer focused. And we spent a lot, really cared that our customers were getting what they needed from the business as opposed to just being a cash cow. And so do you care about building a great company? Do you actually care authentically about the customers you serve? And the third is, are you, you know, have you got, is there an opportunity for me to come in and build something? And so the next company I joined was FreshBooks and they were only about eight or nine people at the time. And it was exactly that scenario, right? Great founders love, very passionate about their customers. We're building a great team and they're to get a new category, which ended up being a thing that I was doing. I was there for almost five years and we grew from 125,000 users to over four, over 5 million. And I'll speed through the rest, but as I went on, you know, I built up capabilities, companies would grow and I just felt the need to just go back. You know, once, once we built up, we were two, 250 people at FreshBooks, had a pretty big marketing team. It's like, you know what, it's time to go back to be employee number 10 and 11 and rebuild a new marketing organization and help a new company scale. And so I did that at Vidyard. 
I did that at ClearFit, which was a job posting app for small businesses, and did it at FunThrough. And it ended up being just something I really enjoyed, all the heavy lifting of like, we don't know what to do. How are we going to grow and scale this to bringing the business to a point where it's actually thriving and succeeding? Yeah, it sounds like you found your sweet spot of where you're going to add the most value, almost from that first experience of I created the playbook and we got the ball rolling. I find it interesting that even at eight or nine people or very small organizations that there was even the insight on product heavy businesses to bring in marketing. Do you find that's common? Do you kind of have to explain to companies why it's important or... No, I mean, you don't want to, if you have to explain it, they're not ready for you, which is fine. Like, I think every company is different. Like sometimes marketing isn't the right thing to bring into that point, but it's usually the founders they know. Like I would say typically in my experiences, they're in market, they've got product market fit. They've got a business running, even if it's small and they've got something repeatable, they just, we need more. We don't know how to do that. And so I would come in and there were still a lot of things that were missing even though they were successful, how, how can I build these foundational elements that would give us, you know, a really strong base to build off of and then to really scale. And so it's funny that you say that because it was after, I think, my third startup when I go, well, I guess this is what I really like to do. You know, when I kept growing and then leaving to start again, you can't see my finger doing the little moves from going up and then going back down again. I actually had that conversation in my own head that said, oh, okay, so I guess this is where you really like to spend your time. And so I really enjoy that phase of growth and I ended up being really, really good at it. And so when we talk about my fractional practice, you know, after doing this for just over 25 years inside organizations, I was, by the time I was done at Fun Through, I'd been thinking about doing something on my own because I was now, I guess I was 50 and I'm looking at like the next 10 years. So I said, what do I want to do for the next 10 years? I've I sort of follow this pattern that's been very rewarding for me. And I'm not one of those consultants that said, I finally got out of the, you know, the rat race of startups. I love working with startups. I love being part of an organization. So that wasn't it. But I found that I was spending more of my time on operational things that I was pretty good at. But what I was really good at was figuring out what do we need to do, right? What, how do we really position ourselves for success? How do we bring in the right people to deliver on the mandate that we have right now so they can be successful? And how do we grow these companies? And the operational pieces I could do, but they weren't as much fun. And so I said, you know what? For the next 10 years, I'm going to give this thing a shot of being a fractional CMO where I'm going to come in and sort of act like I've acted in all my previous roles, just like their own full-time VP marketing. But, you know, your first year anyway is all about figuring out what you need to do. So I decided this is where I'm going to spend my time and energy. So if you think about even a more tightly focused level of value was, you know, what do I really like to do? Where can I add the most value for someone? And it's going to be really helping them figure out, answer the questions. What do we need to do for marketing? How do we go about building a great team? And how do we really execute all the things we need to grow? And so I took that on. And I also was thinking, you know, my times as a full-time marketer were shrinking and shrinking. Like maybe I'd last two or three, maybe four years in that role. And then maybe I'd jump to another company or maybe the company for whatever reason didn't make it. But I wanted to take more control over my career. And I had wanted to have, I didn't want to be at the mercy. I mean, if you look at all the layoffs that have happened over the last couple of years, 
there's really nothing you can do. You're, you know, if a company needs to do layoffs, you're going to get laid off. And I said, you know, well, if I'm one to many as a consultant or a fractional CMO, then I'm not really tied to the success of any one company. And so, and I really don't need that many clients over the course of the year to meet my personal financial goals, which aren't super aggressive by these stretch. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. And so it was just a new phase of my career that said, can I sustain myself and be in control of my career at least over the next 10 years? And that's partly why I created this fractional role. It's such a great tool, especially if you are focused on that early stage for startups where maybe hiring someone full-time could not, it might not be the right decision for the business because they need more tactical people, but they need the strategy coming from someone but at the same time getting not a consultant where it's just high level here's what you should do and walk out you're like it's a really nice middle ground that i think is cool that you've introduced how do you find that startups are receiving this sort of role are there like what are the pros and cons that they're weighing when they're thinking of fractional cmo versus maybe a director of marketing versus fractional cmo versus director I think there's a lot of really smart founders that understand that they've seen how crowded and competitive the marketplace is. And they've come to the this realization themselves, which is really important, that marketing has now become a critical success factor for business. And it's funny because whether they go fractional or they don't go fractional, it has nothing to do. Well, the real reason in terms of my case, most people are choosing to go fractional because I ask them, like, why don't you just hire full-time VP marketing? is they don't know what a good VP marketing looks like because they don't know what they're going to need from marketing. You know, they say, Mix, like, we wouldn't, we would have no idea even how to hire good VP marketing. Yep. And then you go, well, then how do they know they should hire me? Is well, usually they've been referred to me by someone in their network and we have some conversation about what they're dealing with. And I'm very upfront about, okay, like, this is totally not something for me. And in some cases, say, oh, okay, from what you're telling me, like, you kind of know what you need to do. You just need someone to lead that, in which case I've recommended they go and hire a director of marketing rather than bring me in. Because I said, it sounds like you need more operational leadership and execution, you know, rather than figuring out what to do. But most are coming from a place of marketing is percolated to be one of their top priorities. They're looking, the founders are either looking at themselves or the co-founders are looking at each other going, well, nobody here knows what we want to do. They want to build, you know, a world-class marketing team that's going to be able to execute on those growth strategies, but nobody knows how to do it. And so that's what I can offer is I can come in and it's going to feel most of my customers, even though if I'm working one or two days a week, they all think I work five days a week. So it feels to them like they've got a full-time VP marketing solving their big problems. And as long as we're advancing the agenda and we're putting the strategies in place, we're hiring the right people, we're getting the executions done, we're starting to deliver on all the things we say, you know, fractional, not fractional, I think it just vanishes for them. They don't even think of me as like a fractional. They're just like on their CMO. So I think that's where, where it comes from. But it has to start with the founder really being committed and understanding that marketing is going to be critical. And going back, we touched on it a little bit, but then you mentioned that marketing might be percolating to a top priority. Is there patterns in startups where that is the case or types of startups? When does this function become very important? Um, I don't know that there's a pattern. I'll, I'll just say there are, there are founders that recognize um, early on that it's going to be like there, there's so many incredible founders. And I've had I've been so privileged to work with so many 
smart founders. And a lot of smart founders that say, I'm not starting with marketing, I'm going to start somewhere else, which is also the right decision. But, and this is, you know, this is also a pattern for me, even in my full-time work, you know, when I also, I talked about the three things of where I was going to work next. The first thing was I have to choose a founder and I want to choose a founder that I believe in because I know that marketing is only one critical function for it to be successful. So I have to trust that this is a founder. I'm going to have their back and they're going to have my back by being able to manage the other pieces of the business. And so, you know, the founder that's thinking this through and going, you know, what is it going to take for us to win in the market? And if they're realizing it's marketing, some are even starting to bring me in before they actually go live to market because there's all the pre-work that needs to do. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to launch this into market? So I've been really been surprised. That's the one surprise I've had is the number of clients I've worked with that were pre-market versus in market where they realize, look, we've got something here. We know it's really good. We just have no idea how to launch this and, and how to position it, message it, and what kind of marketing activities we're going to need to do it. And so I've been able to come in and help them systematically build that practice. And then we go live and, and then we start to scale up. So that would be one. And then, yeah, between director. So that's between fractional and non-fractional is all about like, I, I, I can't hire full time because I know I'll make a mistake. So if you come in and because I have no interest on being their full-time marketing leader, part of my job is to put myself out of a job and build an internal marketing team for them that's going to be able to sustain them. And sometimes that's included hiring a full-time VP marketing. And it's way easier to do for the whole organization once we've been doing marketing and once we've figured out what works and what we need to do, then it's like, great, now we know exactly the kind of marketing leader that we need not only to run for today, but to run for tomorrow. And in other cases, and one of my clients last year, I hired a director of marketing and then within a year, we ended up promoting that person to be the VP market. So as another, you know, there's so many ways for me to exit, but by the time I'm ready to leave is the company's in a really good position where they really don't need me. And I've got them through that real critical stage of, of getting that traction that they need in, in the team in place. It's so cool. It's very cool. It's not easy, what? but it's fun. And that's why, because it's not easy, that's why I enjoy it so much. I imagine because it's that early stage is so fragile for everybody. I mean, there's so many milestones in a startup, but that beginning part, everyone's very excited. They have the biggest passion, the most belief, but it's also the most challenging because it's from an idea to bringing it to reality or taking it from hundred customers upwards to whatever, whatever it ends up being. But it's a very hard, all guns blazing type of type of time period. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is also there's unlimited things you can do. So it comes down to being able to make choices, right? We, yeah. That's the most critical thing. It's like, what are we going to do with the limited resources that we have? Like we've, everyone's got small resources and a big market opportunities. You can't do everything. So you have to make really careful and smart choices about what you're going to invest in. And that's part of the process and the rigor that I bring in, having gone through that so many times that I can appreciate that you're not going to have a gazillion dollars. I can't build a team of 10 people out of the gate. We can't do everything. So this is why I talk about like, what's a foundational approach or what are the first things first that we need to do? Because so much of what I do doesn't immediately take the business from one to a million, right? But without the things that we do, we'll never get there. And there was one client that I'd had that one of my earliest ones that came to me and they said, Mitch, I've built my marketing team three times now. And it's still not delivering what I need to deliver. And there was a perfect example of for 
out of the goodness of his heart, he really authentically tried to build a good marketing team. But he finally, the CEO and founder could finally admit, I obviously don't know what I'm doing. Nick, can you come in and help us figure out how to get a marketing function that works here? And really, we had to go all the way back to first principles. And those situations are a little more difficult because you got to untangle a lot of stuff that's been <laughs> tangled out, which is why I really respect companies that start early on where they're saying, you know what? We don't want to be spinning our wheels for three years to try and figure this thing out. Why don't we bring in someone that's gone through this that can significantly increase our chances of getting where we need to get to faster and putting in the foundational pieces and the first things first that are going to get our feet squarely on the ground and put us in a position to start growing and scaling. And most of my companies start scaling even faster once I leave because those foundational pieces. It was going to be one of my questions because you can determine based on the target audiences, what are the right channels to invest in? How are you going to grow in that way? But I, I think one of the hardest pieces is really growing that team and figuring out what the first hire is on your marketing team. I know that it depends and there's so many factors, but how do you even start thinking about that? What's the framework to assess how to build that team? Because I think that's a crucial element for success. It's everything. It's so important because if you can't execute on properly, it doesn't matter. I mean, everyone talks about what's strategy or execution. Like, I really believe, you know, execution without a particularly early stage, being executing without a clear vision and clear strategy is very dangerous. And because there's just so many things left to their own devices, people will do what they're going to do. We don't know if they're the right things. But if you actually create these really clear guardrails for marketers, then they can do great work. And it's all going to be the work that matters. So in order for marketers to do work that matters and have those guardrails, it all starts with you as a marketing leader having absolute clarity about what are the priorities for action? What are the outcomes that we need to generate on marketing? And at the same time, so one is what are the outcomes we need to generate? And that's naturally going to lead to then what kind of roles do I need to hire for, right? And what are we going to insource and what are we going to outsource? And what are the critical things? What are the critical capabilities we need to build in? But the other component to who you're going to hire first and I can tell you who I usually hire first after. So that's just who you're going to hire. And who you hire first is just the first things first. So, so me as a marketing leader, it's like, look, there's certain things I can do. So I'm probably not going to hire, you know, if I could do certain things, I'm going to hire somebody that can't do the things that I can do. Or there are things that I can do, but it's full time and there's no way I can do that. And also lead marketing, then I'll hire someone to do that. But once you identify the mission critical work that needs to get done, then you, def you can very clearly define the roles that you need and in what sequence. But then the other thing that's critical, because I say hiring, which is one thing I've been very good at, built very, very strong marketing teams, but they all look different with every company that I work for and every client that I've built. Because clients, different companies have different cultures they're, and they're at different stages and they got different strengths and weaknesses. So I employ something, you know, I do this in the interview process when I'm interviewing candidates, I call it an eyes wide open hiring process where I need to tell you not just about the role and what's needed, but I have to set the context of what they're stepping into. Like, here's where we are. Like, you know, if I'm hiring the first ever marketing person, just so you know, like this company's never done marketing before, right? There's no CRM, there's no data, there's, there's nothing. Like there's nothing there, right? And I might say, and you know, the sales and marketing relationship, it's getting better, but maybe it's not perfect. Like, I just wanna be very clear on the situation that they're coming into because these are the things, these are the triggers that I've learned, the levers where people get to be really good or really bad. And one is they're really good when they get to do the work that they're really good at. 
and where they're doing it in an environment in which they re they really thrive. And some people, you know, if you're too early, they're like, oh, I can't come into a completely ambiguous situation. Like, you know, your job is to figure it out versus your job is, look, we've, put, we've got some things in place. I need you to come in and scale that up. Very different mandates, very different situations. So when you're building a marketing team, I think when you figure out who you're going to hire, the key is to make sure you actually know the work that needs to get done. So you, you know the person can do the work, but you're also dead clear with them in terms of the pros and the cons and the actual situation that they're going to step into. So they can either walk away and go, no, thank you. Or they walk into it, eyes wide open, going, oh my God, this is amazing. I love building things from scratch or, you know, I'd love to collaborate with the sales group, you know, and, and so those are critical pieces. For me, I always hire a director of marketing first. That was going to be my, my next question. <laughs> And, and well, part of it, even when I did it in my full-time, when I was full-time VP marketing, I'd still hire a director first because I've usually identified a core area that we're going to need to grow in. And we're probably, if they're successful, then we're going to need to scale them out. Because I always, I tell everyone in a new role at a startup, the day you start, there's already too much for you to do. There's already too much for one person to do. So I'm going to hire you and we're going to set you up to succeed. And when you succeed, I'm hiring someone at the director level so they can self-manage themselves and so that when they are successful they've got capacity and capability to bring other people under underneath them rather than me having to have like seven or eight or nine people report and right so, so this yeah. person fills in your gaps the areas that you're not an expert in and is kind of a more junior you so very collaborative in that role is that kind of yeah, I mean, I have a bias for collaboration anyway, particularly early stage. You're learning in, you're learning so many things so quickly that if, if within yeah. your own team and within cross-functionally, you're not talking, collaborating, you're just wasting valuable time and energy and you're just going to spin your wheels. So that's one thing. I'd say they're less of a mini me, but I'm anticipating, well, in my full-time roles, like I'm thinking I'm going to be there 10 years, right? right. So I'm thinking longer term, look, if I'm going to build capability, I'd rather aim a little, I'd rather hire a director for a role have them because directors are still very happy to do a lot of the work. And the reward is if you can create success for yourself, then I'm just going to give you more money and you either spend more money or you can go hire some more people because you're creating success. And that's a, a very smart path. So you let, you let your next level of you know, directors be successful and build capabilities. So you're building in instant scale, right? So I know if something's going really well and it's just a junior person, well, oh, now I got to find a director. Like I can't, I can't hire another junior person because they're going to both report into me and that's going to suck up more of my time. I'd rather hire someone that has the capability to expand with their own success. As a fractional CMO, because I'm not actually going to be running your campaigns or your executions, we need somebody, I need, a, I need an everyday 100% full-time employee that I'm going to be collaborating with and working with that's going to own the execution for everything and it's going to be my partner as we build and run this thing. And for me, it doesn't make any sense to hire anything lower than a director because as yeah. they're successful, we'll just hire more people under them and, and I just keep it a one-to-one relationship. One challenge that I, as I talk to founders that they face is when they're really early stage, hiring is very, hiring unicorns or hiring very strong is difficult because someone's taking a risk in the first place to join your business. So they have to be really passionate about it versus if they are going to a Shopify or a PNG or, you know, name any other fortune 500 company, someone is jumping at that opportunity. It's very different until you have that scale. How do you suggest 
founders or even yourself when you're hiring overcome that challenge to find high quality employees at a very early stage company? Well, I look at it differently. If I look at my own career, like I like to think at some point I became high quality and I just continually made myself available for early stage companies like this was just and it goes back to what I talked about as hiring is being clear about what kind of stage or scenario you're walking into. And no matter what, there's always marketers that are going to love the stage that you're at. They're going to love stepping in to the crap that, that it is your startup. And they love it. Like marketers will right. complain and they'll complain and they'll complain, but they'll, then they'll go, but I love it. Right. What you really want to do is you want to make sure that you're, when you write your job description, when you're talking about the opportunity, you talk a lot about the context in which they're coming in and the situation around them. Because when I've hired, you know, I've had a lot of people and I've written these job descriptions to completely push people away and to be a magnet for others. And people thought, oh my God, like you totally, I read this job description. And it sounded exactly like me, right? And that's what you're looking for. There's just like there's always new startups. Like I, I love being at early stage because there's always early stage. There's always new companies coming into early stage, right? And they're always want to be successful. So I'm at a very early entry point where there's always new businesses cycling in. It's the same mm -hmm. thing with early stage companies. There's marketers that are maybe, you know, I've been three or four years at a company and I've gone through that scale up. And I'm like, I'm kind of getting bored now. I need to go back and get excited again about building stuff up. So I don't really think if they're comparing an early stage company with a tier one, then I'm not quite sure that they've figured out what they really want. Right? Yeah. Also something interesting you hit on, on the very tactical side of building a job description, you said someone will say, oh, this sounds exactly like me. And I think being able to say it sounds exactly like me means you're writing the job description in a way that someone can relate to it. It's not a what you'll be doing and check, check, check. It's here's the type of person does this sound like you. And I think that's really important because you'll see a bunch of job descriptions that it's a list of things, you know, it's a listicle and it's just like, that's overwhelming. No, thank you. But I think if you describe the type of work environment, the challenges, the excitement, all of that, it probably does elicit a reaction from certain people that you want to engage with. Well, it's no different than marketing to acquire a new customer, right? How do you go to market? You don't go to market talking about, here's our great product. You know, here's all the things our product does. We know that fails. What we talk about is like, is this you? I call it, is this you marketing? Hey, you know, are you uh, a small business owner that, that really hates hiring and hates pushing all your crap out to job boards and figure out who to hire, we've got something that can help. You spend more time understanding your customer and your ideal, you know, it's like your ideal ICP is your ideal candidate profile, right? You understand, again, it comes back to knowing what you need inside your organization. Like I know the skills that I need, but I also know the type of person that I need. And my job description has to present both of those things. So it's actually a piece of marketing that goes out that I'm trying to put to the world as a marketing exercise to acquire and attract people that are more likely to succeed in my company. In the same way as a marketer, when I'm selling a product or service, I'm trying to attract the kinds of customers that are going to be successful using my product or service. So it's really no different. So it's such a shame when I see all these like really cold, sterile job descriptions that aren't providing any kind of eyes wide open. And they're not being more descriptive in terms of, you know, here's the pros, here's the cons, 
right? So if you like this, you know, if this is you, if you I, I remember one job description that says, do you wake up every morning checking your email to see how many new customers you got the next day, right? If you do these types of things, because we needed somebody that was just relentless about, like, like they really cared about outcomes and results as opposed to, do you care about crafting beautiful messages and campaigns? Very different, right? And that was my very first client had built a team of people that were more interested in the craft of what they were doing and they weren't outcome focused. And we had to reorganize that entire team against people that were very good at the craft, but what they loved about what they were doing were the outcomes that they created for the craft. And so... Those are both valuable skills that you need in different situations, but describing those things is, is really important. Yeah, I even think of when I transitioned, I mean, I've moved industry a few times now, but going from CPG where there is an element of being focused on the consumer, but you're also very focused on supply chain and the product itself and brand awareness. There's just so many other factors. And at the same time, I was building up my own business, which got me very interested in Shopify. When I got hired there, I had no idea what I was doing. It was my first time in growth. But they, the company as a whole loved that I was essentially the customer. And I really embodied who they wanted to work with so I could bring, learn the craft, but really understand what that, why that output was important. And to me, that was a that came through in the job description as well, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. And listen, I made a job from big company to early stage startup. And I didn't know. I didn't know what I, I mean, hey, until you do enough things, you don't really yeah. know what you're going to love doing. You know, I talked to a lot of marketers that are like, well, I don't know, maybe I should do this and I should do that. I'm like, you know what, just try it. But, you know, we're so lucky today that gone is a stigma of like career hopping, right? So I've gone from this job to this job. In fact, it's so easy to move from one to another. Like there's so fewer hurdles, let me put it that way, that I think it's not a bad idea for marketers to explore what it's like to work inside different organizations. Because I've seen people, I hired a startup marketer, one of my startups as my director, and it was pretty clear after a while that he wasn't really good dealing with ambiguous. Like he wanted to be a startup marketer, but he just wasn't. Right. And when I'd done his reference checks, he had worked at TELUS. And of all the references I did, everyone at Telus said, oh my God, this, this guy was amazing. We loved working with him. He did such great work. And when he was done, you know, I had left and then he had gone. And I said, listen, you might want to think about, I said, everyone loved you at Telus. Like instead of going to another startup, you know, having worked with you, maybe you need to go to just a mid-tier company where there's a little more structure. You're narrowly focused. You can do some great work. Like you clearly are an amazing collaborator. He had so many positive attributes. He ended up working at, at, at Intuit and he's been there for, I think, four years now and really enjoying it, right? And that was the right it's spot weird, for him, but we, we need to yeah. try. It, and it, right to the beginning when you said you had to figure out where did you want to be and it maybe wasn't at P&G where it's very structured, but maybe it wasn't going to be an early stage startup, but you had to test that out and it worked out. But yeah, it's playing the field and finding that sweet spot for you. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to thrive there. I had no idea. Yeah. And I'm the same person and I went from being managed out of Procter & Gamble, like this guy's no good, to spending nine years helping take a company from two to 100 million revenue, growing from junior marketer to VP and like yeah. doing, no, of course, it wasn't all me, but I was phenomenally successful in those types of roles. But who, who knew? Like, I didn't know. I didn't go there because I thought I was going to crush it. I, again, I just went there because like, wow, these are really great people trying to build a really good company. Fascinating category. Lots for me to sink my teeth into. Let's see what happens. Right. Yeah, so I've just stayed in that lane because I was super happy. 
So nearing to the end mm. of our conversation, and there's a few last questions that I always ask everyone. And the first one, and I, I, I think you might have some interesting insights in this because of your role, but what are some of the myths that founders believe that you want to dispel for them? Well, that's a big question. I know. And there's a range of answers that I've received. So any anything that comes to mind? Yeah, so something I, I find myself saying quite often is you're not in the business you think you're in. So if you're selling, if you're a fintech company fund through, I was at, right? They were invoice factoring companies. They were in cash flow management, had a cash flow solution for a lot of small business owners. I said, if you think that's the business you're in, you're wrong. You're actually in the business of building the business that needs to go and capture that market. So early on, founders are very much attracted by the market opportunity, and they're just trying to get people in place to go and drive revenue and build a business to the market. But at some point, if they really want to grow and scale that business, you're only able to do so if you build a really strong company. You're hiring the right people at the right stage, you're creating systems and structures and a little more processes, right? But your focus starts to become as a leader is how do I create I still like the conditions for success in my company so that because if I can't build the company that can go and capture that value in the market, I'm never going to capture the market in the, the value in the market. And so one of the myths is you think you're building the business of what your business does, but really your most important role is building the business that's the company and creating conditions to get the right people to do amazing work, to work together, to deliver those the results that you need. And that's probably one of the, the biggest myths. And, and when you talk to a founder that's gone through that, they're like, absolutely. Once I figured out that I need to build a great company and I need to spend more of my time there, then, then they get it. That's when the magic happens. That's very interesting. I wonder if that is exciting to founders or discouraging because it's a little bit you have to walk away a bit from the pro maybe it's a product you're building or whatever it is to focusing on the company itself but it's probably more often than not very true that's where the efforts need to go yeah and there's the, the thing is there's no problem with the initial focus because look right i don't really care about building a great company if i can't actually figure out this business right so but what happens is it's a mental shift is like you're really focused on getting the right product getting in front of customers, how do I attract and convert people? And, and, and it has to be about that because you need to get traction in place. And you can't be thinking about how many are going to grow and scale this organization. It's all about first things first is let's figure out what the hell we're doing here. Is there a business to be had? And then though, when you want to scale, when you really want to build something and it's time is your orientation and the value you add as a leader is very different. Now it's all about I'm responsible for creating the kind of organization that, you know, I need to bring in people to my company that share my mission and share my passion for what we're doing, right? That are going to live the kinds of values that I value and, and they're going to value with each other that are, I'm going to give them meaningful work, you know, to work on things and I'm going to compensate them fairly and I'm going to figure out how to reward these people. I'm going to get them to refer us to all their friends and everyone in their network and say great things. So once you realize that's really the secret to, to building it out, and a lot of founders don't see that early on because it's just, it's not important right out of the yeah. gate. Your founding team is important for sure. Like that is like, if you get that wrong, you're never going to get anywhere. But once you sort of figured out your product's place, really your value is continuing to beat that drum. Keep everybody focused. Remind everyone why you're, why you're this. Why do they come into work every day? 
make sure they enjoy working with each other, make sure they got meaningful work to do, make sure they're being pushed and challenged. Because as much as we complain, I always say it's the CAO's job to drive you crazy by giving you like goals and targets. You're going like, what the hell? Like, how am I going to do that? I'm like, well, the CEO, that's your job. You got to push me and stretch me. But then you got to support me and help me see my way through that. And I do that as a marketing leader as well. My job is to create, you know, ambitious goals and targets, not stupid ones, but and to push people because people will learn and grow if they're faced with new challenges versus no one in the startup world wants to phone it in, right? No one that really wants to work in startups wants to, some days you want to phone, you want to phone it in, but most of the time you're there because you're excited about what's going on. You want to make an impact. You want to grow and develop. Yeah. I think that's a, uh, one of the unique things about being in the startup space is you truly every day with every project can make an impact on the business. And that's, you just don't find that anywhere else. I have another myth for you because okay. I, yes. I, I tend genuinely avoid, avoid these conversations like on LinkedIn, but I did step in once. And the other myth is if you're creating a new category, because there's all this debate about category, creating a new category versus marketing within an existing category. And I've done new categories enough because listen, if I could choose to, you know, it's a lot easier to market within an existing category, but when marketing an existing category completely denigrates your inherent value then it's a bad thing and you need to create a new one. But there's a myth that, oh, if you're going to create a new category, you need like so much money and it's going to take forever, you know, and it's so expensive. It's like, that's total crap, right? I've done it like three or four times now. We did it at Vidyard and like my monthly budget was $5,000, right? But we still manufactured a category and created all kinds of momentum as a video marketing platform. Now it's much more video or sort of sales enablement. But in that day, we created this new category. Nobody knew anything about it. I did not have a lot of money, but we were very strategic and deliberate. We did the things we needed to do to, to create that story and that narrative out there. So it didn't take a gazillion years. It didn't take a gazillion dollars. If creating a new category is the right thing for you to do, don't let anyone tell you that don't do that. It's too expensive and it's, you know, you know, it's going to crush you. And if they need to create a new category, reach out to Mitch to figure out how well, to do that. It's I argue, I argue that it, it is very expensive if you don't know how to do it, that's, right? It's very, yeah. So then I'm not the only one that's done it. So, you know, just make sure when you're hiring for that role, you know, you're hiring people that have gone through that before and understand what it's going to take and that they're able to do it. They're not going to come in and say, well, I need a bazillion dollars and, you know, 23 right. people. But you know, there's lots of really successful brands that have sort of done a new category or, or a subcategory, carved out a very unique space. It didn't take a lot of money, but it took some blood and sweat and it just took a, a discipline and a rigor to get there. Comes back to that passion in, in startups. You need to have that passion for the end goal. Yeah. And you just need leverage. Like you have no leverage early on, but at Vidyard, we started integrating with brands like Eloqua and Marketo and Salesforce. So every time we integrated with them, there's a press release and every press release I asked, hey, I remember we did a press release. When we integrated with Eloqua and at the time, Steve Woods was the CEO and he was also in Toronto and I'm, I, I get on a call with Steve and Steve, I need a, he said, oh, don't ask me for a quote for the press release. I really don't want to, I don't have time. I said, okay, I'm not going to ask you for a quote, but I said, are you legitimately excited by the fact that you guys are now integrated with Vidyard? He goes, I am so excited about that. I said, well, why are you excited about it? He says, you know, forever video has been this black box for marketers. And Vidyard finally opens up that black box of data so companies understand 
the value of their video and they know how to get an ROI from it. And I'm like, boom, thank you very much. <laughs> so now, you know, that goes out in the press release. You know, we got a good PR agency that was still within our budget. We got the word out there. And now we have the CEO of a very big organization that sells to tons of enterprise companies that was our target audience telling the world, because normally it's like, hey, we integrated with Eloqua, yay, yay, yay. Well, no, he's saying, here's why we're excited to bring Vidyard to our customers, right? And then we did the Marketo one and they did the same thing. They had a slightly different angle. And as soon as we did the Marketo release, what happens? We get inbound inquiries from companies like Hootsuite and Salesforce that says, hey, we're thinking maybe we should integrate with you guys, right? And so we went, like, there was not a lot of money involved in that, but it's all about leverage and, and how you can turn things you're already doing into bigger and better opportunities. And if I didn't spend that time with Steve, I knew it was so important to not have us say why we are happy to integrate with Eloqua. I needed him to say that we were really excited to do this. And here's, and I, we had never used the expression, this black box of video content. But it now became actually part of our marketing strategy. Whenever we were interviewed and they like, tell us about Vidyard, we'd say, oh, man, forever. Vidyard, you know, video content's been a black box for marketers. And he gave us some gold and he didn't even, he didn't even want to talk to me. <laughs> uh, well, that's the magic right there. Yeah. My yeah. very last question, and then I will let you go for the afternoon, is just for new founders entering in the space and finding their community and their network. And you and I just started through networking, like started talking through networking. And I, it's such a crucial part to success. Do you have any suggestions for founders to find network, find a network with other startups? I talked to a lot of VP, VPs of marketing and CMOs, and we all have our challenges and struggles, but I also talk with a lot of founders and the, the, the challenges you're facing at a founder level are very unique. And so it is important to build the community. Upteaming is one. But I don't know any uh, too many others offhand, but um, back when we were not as much work from home, you know, there was the 111 environment where a lot of people at startups were starting up. It's still around. But I say, don't be afraid to reach out to any founders in your market. It's easy enough yeah. to find other startups. And there are all these hubs that are created where startups are aggregating. But I don't know that it, I don't I haven't heard a lot of founders on. say I'm having trouble finding other no, and I was going to say, I think all of that is great suggestions for non-founders, just people that are feel entrepreneurial or in the startup space like you or I, or just ping someone on LinkedIn and have a conversation. Like, I think you're super active on LinkedIn and it opens a door for additional conversation. So I, I like that. Yeah, advice. don't be afraid to. It's funny. Someone did this to me. So when they when I connected with someone on LinkedIn and I got a reply back that said, Hey, Mitch, with the, the wave emoji, thanks for connecting, right? I'm like, oh, that was nice. I should do that. Like, I'm generally really happy when anyone connects with me on LinkedIn, right? right? And so I start adopting that because part of me wants to let the other person, like, I don't know what they want, but I also want to let them know that it's, it's cool if you want to have a conversation with me, right? If I'm accepting you as a connection, it also means like, hey, oh, how can I help you? And so... Now that I'm putting in the, hey, Kelly, with a wave, you know, thanks for connecting with the exclamation mark, I'm seeing a lot more people then respond to that. Oh, you know, really glad, glad to know you or blah, 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 blah. I would like, you're kind of opening the door for a conversation without forcing it. And mm -hmm. there's more people in the startup community that are, there's so many people that are willing to be helpful. Now you have to be thoughtful in how you approach these people because I've heard, you know, everyone's like, oh, 
if someone else says, can I pick your brain on something? Right. So be respectful. But there's lots of people out there that are willing to help and spend time with you. Yeah. Great. Well, that's everything for today, Mitch. I so very much appreciate you taking time to chat. Thank you so much for sharing. I think this was a really good conversation. You asked some really great questions, Kelly. It's always fun chatting with you. So um, yeah, I hope that the next one's even better, That, but you're doing a great job. I hope so. Thanks, Mitch. Take care. All right. Bye. How I Became a Bluemex Podcast is hosted by Kelly Yuffet and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more How I Became content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.